Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the US Congressman Adam Smith. Adam had a hugely successful political career and enjoyed a loving family life with his wife and two kids. But in his 40s, seemingly out of nowhere, his body and mind broke down to the extent that he almost had to stop everything in his busy life. Now he's written a book about his years of struggle with chronic pain, anxiety and depression. It's a raw account of some truly dark times, but it's also an inspirational tale of recovery that's full of wisdom and insight that could benefit us all. It's called Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety, and I'll put the link in the show notes. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking to Adam for this. He's a really smart and articulate bloke whose thoughts on mental health, recovery and tackling anxiety mirror so many of my own. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Congressman Adam Smith, welcome to The Reset. Well, thank you. Appreciate the chance to be on with you this morning. It's a real pleasure to have you. Um, Your new book, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. It's a very painful, raw, honest, but uh, an inspirational story of recovery as well. Tell us about why you wrote it. I wrote it originally just sort of to, you know, better help me as I was recovering. Um, it was about late 2019 when I finally started uh, to get better. And I had been through, well, a long time, but six years in particular since the anxiety had hit and then the pain and all the doctors and all the different people I'd seen. I wanted to summarize it. You know, okay, well, what have I learned, you know, both in terms of exercises, in terms of, you know, mental approach and all of that. And as I wrote it, it occurred to me that a lot of people are suffering from very similar things, some combination of anxiety, depression, and chronic pain, and that telling my story publicly could really help people uh, as they tried to navigate through that. And I don't mean to imply that there's like one road and I'm giving them the, but it's just 
you know, guideposts, if you will, and things that I think, you know, would have been helpful to me uh, back when the whole thing started um, if I had seen it. So I figured it could be helpful to a broader audience. Um, so I decided to share it. Uh, you'd had an extremely successful life and career with, as I understand it, not many troubles in this regard, you know, to your, your mental health. Um, but then in, uh, tell us about when this all began for you with the chronic pain and all the related illnesses. Sure. I think the simplest way to explain it, and this is where I start the book. I start the book at my absolute lowest point, which is 2016, after I'd had my third hip surgery. I wasn't getting better. I wasn't recovering from that hip surgery. I was taking a lot of medication, both for pain and for my mental condition, anti-anxiety meds, um, antidepressants, a whole bunch of different things. Um, the anxiety was as bad as it had ever been. Um, and then I sort of go back to, okay, well, how did I get there? And specifically for me, all of this became debilitating. 2013 was when I had this massive anxiety attack um, that just wouldn't go away. And I was like trying to explain to people, there's a difference between stress and, and clinical anxiety. Stress is sort of the normal ups and downs of life. And, and by the way, mental health is enormously important, even in dealing with stress. You can learn how better to handle that and get yourself in a better place mentally. But clinical anxiety hits you and you don't really know where it's coming from. Okay. It's a feeling of existential fear, constant you're constantly thinking your life is on the line um, and you don't have a specific cause that you can identify. That hit me in 2013. A year later, um, my hips started to go bad and the pain got so bad that I struggled to walk and sit. I was in pain most of the time. Now, it would be wrong to say that it all started in 2013. All right. So what I had to do is I had to go back, both in terms of my physical history and my mental history. And as I walked through it, I had thought of myself as never having any mental health problems. But, you know, at the age of 25, I had this four or five month period of absolute depression, just complete darkness at a time in my life when everything was going great. All right. But it never even occurred to me, OK, this could be a mental health something. Maybe I should talk to somebody about it. So, yes, when this first hit me, I was like, what the hell? Where is this coming from? But then as I thought about it, you begin to sort of piece together stuff from your past that really helps you deal with what you're facing at the time. Hmm. That's so familiar to me. And I think to a lot of people who listen to this, that, that idea that you didn't, it's not until you hit a big crisis that you start to almost audit the other stuff that's been going on. And you start to identify moments as far back as childhood that, you did feel awful, but you kind of swept under the carpet or you told yourself, oh, it's not that bad. Or you, you refused to certainly label it with depression. I mean, when you were in your mid 20s, did you acknowledge it then as depression or did you try and explain it in other ways to yourself? I, I did not acknowledge it as depression. I didn't. It was just weird. I didn't know what it was. And I just got through it. And that's that's a point that I make in the book. One of my my major impediments to getting help Certainly, we talk a lot about stigma, and that mm. was there for me. It's like, I don't want people to know that I'm having this problem. But the other thing for me is from a very young age, my concept of mental health, and this is unbelievably naive, was there's normal and then there's crazy. Yeah. And you want to stay on the normal side of that line. And I simply determined, okay, I'm normal. I don't have to worry about mental health. All right. So it just wouldn't occur to me that I would have, quote, a mental health problem. I'm fine. 
All right. Whatever's going on, is just, you know, something that's 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 in that normal category. I think it's really helpful for people to understand that when it comes to mental health, it's not unlike physical health. All right. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you I can think of an example, if you if you break your leg, OK, you've got a health problem. But it's also possible that, you know, oh, gosh, I kind of tweaked my ankle a little bit and I'm walking a little funny on it. Okay, Maybe that's something that just goes away. Maybe it's something that you need pay, to pay more attention to. Well, your brain's the same way. Um, it is not, you know, you're not crossing over a line. It's like there's constant sort of maintenance and different things that you can do uh, that, that can better help your long-term mental health. Do you think we as men struggle more to observe that in ourselves, acknowledge it in ourselves and, and just kind of take care of ourselves in that sense, you know, keeping an eye on our mood and our thoughts and our feelings? No, I think certainly, and I think this is changing gen- generationally. Um, I, mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing you're a little, little bit younger than I am. But, you know, there was a time when men didn't talk about their feelings, didn't talk about emotions. And I think that was a, was a significant problem in terms of being able to deal with mental health. Because one of the keys that I've discovered of several, you have to be honest with yourself about what you're feeling. Um, about what is upsetting to you, what you feel guilty about, what you feel angry about. If you keep that stuff buried and try to pretend like it's not there, it can pop up in all kinds of problematic places. And as men, certainly growing up, I'm 58 years old, so I was born in the mid-60s. That was sort of part of that generation that, you know, you tough it out. You You don't talk about it. I think that's changing now. I think younger generations feel more comfortable talking openly about what they're feeling, which is which is an incredible positive. Um, you know, I don't really have the sociological background to know what's going on with your average, you know, 25-year-old woman or your average 25-year-old man. My sense is that they're talking more about it. But if I had to guess, I would guess there is still more of a problem on the male side with being willing to discuss these issues. Um, that's that's a bit of an overgeneralization. I'm sure there's some women who keep everything bottled up. I'm sure there's some men who are all day, you know, it's yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily put put a gender label on it. I would just say it's good for everybody um, yeah. to be honest about what, what they're really feeling. But for you, it took a crisis in order to open your mind yep. to that necessity, which is the same for me, same for so many men. It's such a shame that it takes us to almost be de- in a state of desperation before we open our mind to the idea of, oh, maybe I can be honest about myself. Um, And what did you discover? What were your biggest fears when you started to open up? Well, I think, and this is sort of the way to think about how, how mental health works. You have sort of two broad categories. One are the things that you're afraid of that you can, in fact, identify, um, that you can you can die. Hey, what are you anxious about? I'm anxious about my health. I'm anxious about my job. You know, um, you know, I'm anxious about the inevitability of death, which is definitely an issue out there that we don't talk enough about. But then the second layer, when you get to more clinical anxiety and clinical depression, is stuff that probably happened in your past that you just never emotionally dealt with that, that is undermining you. So when I began to open up, actually on the, you know, I'd always been reasonably good at being honest with myself about the stuff going on in my life at the time um, that that I that bothered me or didn't or didn't bother me that I felt bad about or good about. But I had a, a past from my childhood that I never adequately dealt with. 
So the biggest opening for me was to start talking about it. And frankly, the biggest problem for me, and this is a pretty basic problem that a lot of people have, you have to have an inherent sense of your own self-worth. And I apologize, but this, this takes a moment to explain. And I didn't have that. And this was what my the psychologist, he was about the 12th psychologist slash psychiatrist slash therapist that I saw who finally helped me. That was the first thing he said to me after reading my the questionnaire that I'd filled out. He said, you don't think you have the right to exist. And I had no idea what he was talking about when he mm -hmm. said that. Number one, number two, I was pretty sure he was full of it um, because that's just some sort of psychological mumbo jumbo. What does that mean? That's not doing anything for me. Um, I exist. My thought on the matter really doesn't, doesn't figure into it. Okay. Um, but what he was getting at was a, a very important psychological concept. And that is a base belief that you are worthy of love, that you have you know, self-worth just because, because what I, I argued with him and I said, all right, look, I'm, I'm good at my job. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. Here's all the things I've done that prove that I'm a worthy human being. Mm. And he said, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. You don't get your self-worth from your deeds or your actions. You get it simply because you are human. And the reason that's important is if you are measuring your self-worth based on Frank and basically how good a person you are, however you individually define that. Um, you know, I want to be really successful at my job or I don't know, I, I want to collect the most salt and pepper shakers, whatever it is you're doing in your life. Um, you know, you want to know you're good at it. That's a different thing. And if you don't, if you think that, that you think your self-worth is dependent upon that, then you're in a bit of a problem because that means if you, if you aren't good, if you fail, if you screw up, if you do something wrong, then your entire existence is at stake. Mm. It's a constant existential threat. Every day you have to prove that you have a right to exist. And the pressure contained in that is enormous. And the reason that a lot of people don't get that basic um, sense of self-worth, it has to do with your childhood. You have to have unconditional love at some point as a child. You have to feel that security in your environment. Typically, you know, people who don't come from very unstable households, you know, they're maybe they're, you know, they're abandoned as a child. They have an alcoholic parent. Um, they go through a foster care system, don't have that connection. Me, I was adopted. Uh, my biological mother um, kept me for like a week, 10 days before giving me up for adoption to her older brother and flying me all the way across the country. Um, you know, and my, my adoptive mother had a bit of a depression problem, which I didn't know anything about. So we basically never bonded. I never had that secure sense of an environment that gave me that sense that no matter what, you're going to be okay. I didn't have that. Um, and then there were various other things about how that family that I grew up in fell apart, um, that really bugged me. I mean, that's a bit of a complicated story. My father died when I was 19. My mother died when I was 25, the day before I got elected to the state Senate. Um, and at that point in my life, you know, when I got elected to the state Senate, life was great after a very big struggle, you know, not, not thinking I was going to be able to do what I wanted to do with my life. I was there. And so I kind of washed my hands of the whole thing. I said, okay, and I had an older brother who had all manner of problems, uh, who was not adopted. Um, that whole the family sort of fell apart from the time I was 12. But then both my parents passed away. I got elected. Life's good. I'm not, that's gone. All right. 
Mm. But it wasn't wrong. Um, it was still bugging me on a series of levels. So you got to have a sense of self-worth and you got to deal with whatever in your life um, emotionally has affected you that you haven't adequately dealt with, where there's two sort of baselines. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that flows from there. That is really fascinating. And um, here's a big question. So I'm not expecting the, 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 you know, the, the definitive answer by any means, but I understand the process by which you, you know, you go back, you, you take a look back, you reflect, you audit your feelings and the experiences of your life. And you may understand why you don't have enough self-worth in your view, what's the important thing in, in then sort of starting again in order to really have some self-worth once you realize yeah. the reasons why you don't how do you build it yeah well i think just being told that concept and in my case it took it took three and a half years worth of psychotherapy um i'm a little stubborn it shouldn't necessarily have to take that long but if you get to the point in life and i was what 51 50 51 something like that when i started this therapy um you know it, it may take you basically you have to be convinced of it um, and that's what my psychologist convinced me of as, as he walked through it. And I think at the end of the day, it's just a matter of acceptance, of understanding that. And there is a certain logic to it when you stop and think about it. Um, human beings, we're, we're all worthy. And if you're going to measure it by who's the smartest, who's the strongest, who's the kindest, who's we all succeed and fail on a day in and day out basis. Certainly some you know, are better in any one of those categories than others. But trying to rationally categorize, you know, who the best people are and who the worst people are will lead you down a rabbit hole of insanity, um, literally. Um, better, better to just accept that baseline sense that everybody is worthy of love. And then we're working on a bunch of stuff up here. <clears throat> and the stuff up here is not irrelevant, okay? It, it matters how well you treat people. You know, it matters how you approach your life but not in an existential sense. So basically, I don't have an easy answer to that. You simply have to accept it. And then psychologists and other people are the ones who are really trained at how to get you to accept it. Do you think that the lack of self-worth you had earlier in your life in some way drove you and perhaps helped your success in your political career and other aspects of your life? 100%. <laughs> You know, and frankly, at the end of the day, the reason that the, the, aside from my basic stubbornness, um, the second reason why it took me so long to accept this was, you know, I who I was, which was worry, 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 think, 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 work, work, work. I was just, you know, it had worked pretty well for me. And now this guy's telling me that I got to be somebody different. OK, A, nah, that's hard just in general, but B, who I was, it worked pretty well. Okay, yeah, you know, I'm kind of freaking out now, but 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 I got <laughs> to the point where I was successful. But what I discovered, and the best thing I discovered was just because you lose you you gain that sense of self-worth, so you're not constantly driven, doesn't mean that you can't be successful. And what I discovered after I went through this, and I'm still working at a very high level in politics at the time. I got better. I was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, I'm the ranking member now because we lost the majority. Um, say la vie. But anyway, um, I had a lot of important work to do. And I did it as well as I've ever done it. And the, the sentence that best describes it 
I was still every little bit as intense. I was every little bit as focused. I was every little bit as passionate about getting things done and succeeding. But I did it all without the anger and self-flagellation. And it's much better that way, okay? Because I used to do these things. And then when it looked like I wasn't going to succeed, I'd be, I'd just, it'd make me angry. And I'd spend all this time going, God, how could you be so stupid? Why did you say that? Why why didn't you call this person and call that person? You know, I went through all of that, which was not particularly helpful. Um, You know, so I put that aside and just focused on, you know, intensely focusing on getting the job done. And you can do it. Yes, if you're existentially afraid, it can be a motivating factor, but there are other better ways to motivate yourself to succeed. Yeah, it's not a binary choice between being successful and crazy or unsuccessful and sane. I think a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, yeah, I do. I do. I did, like, yeah. yeah, it's like, this is who I am. Mm. You're telling me to not be who I am. Um, mm. That's a hard thing. Giving up drinking is the same thing. Uh, you know, when I was struggling with this stuff, I had to give up drinking. And a lot of you think, oh, my, my personality um, is sort of tied to this. And in fact, my personality has been quite helpful to me in various ways, you know, professionally, socially, and all the rest of it. I, I don't know who I'm going to be. I'll probably be a much less interested and charismatic and popular person without this. You don't want to talk to me. Yeah. yeah. And then you discover a whole new, usually better in every way side of yourself. Um, so let, let me ask you going back to the sort of timeline of, of your issues that, you know, you, it was actually the, the chronic payment started with your hip operation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right. And that that was a that, that those were practical and physical issues that obviously impacted upon your mental health, too. Yeah. No, the uh, yeah, it started with hip pain. And this mm. is an interesting thing because there is an intersection between mental illness and chronic pain. And there are instances where anxiety or depression can be the cause of your pain. And in my case, I'm sure those things contributed, but I also had actual physical things wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, It took me a long time to figure that out as well. You know, I had, well, I had knee surgery when I was 16 years old um, because a bone died in my knee and it had to be, you know, fixed. And from that point forward, you know, I've had knee pain, I've had back pain, I've had foot pain, a whole bunch of things that I've sort of navigated my way around for pretty much my entire life since I was 16. But it was always manageable. Okay. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't run because my knee would swell up, but I could walk. You know, I, I could do things occasionally, um, or I could do things fairly consistently. There was just pain. But then, you know, a year after my anxiety hit, my hips went bad and I just I couldn't do anything. And it took me, in that case, four years to find someone who could help me. 
And the key to it was muscle activation. Because what had happened to me was because of my knee surgery, I didn't rehab my knee properly. I mean, it was 1982. I was 16 years old. I went to a physical therapist for like two months. And I don't know. Um, and then I just protected my right leg because it hurt more. So I put more weight on my left leg. And that wound up getting my body all twisted out of shape. And then I had impinged hips, which is a complicated thing. A lot of people have impinged hips, don't ever develop a problem. But if you work your body the wrong way, the impinged hips can grind on each other and uh, generate bone spurs, which is what happened to me. But it wasn't just the hips. It's where the pain seemed to be. So I went to a hip surgeon. You know, into a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the hip surgeon said, hey, you know, your hips look bad. Let's fix them. And I went through three surgeries on that. Um, and who knows? Maybe I needed new hips. Maybe I didn't. But the real problem was my muscles had shut down because I wasn't using them properly. And that's where the muscle activation therapist um, really helped me. It's a very specific discipline um, started in Colorado called muscle activation techniques in which they understand how your muscles work and how they work in tandem. And they do uh, massage and also electric pulse um, that gets your muscles restarted. And once you get them restarted and build some resiliency, those muscles protect those other aspects of your body. And I can't even begin to tell you it took 2018 was when I started, took about a year um, for that to get significantly better. And now I, I feel better than I have and probably, well, probably since that knee surgery 45 years ago or 43 years ago, whatever the hell it was. In 2016, married to the, the pre-existing anxiety and, and other mental health issues, you you were on pretty strong painkillers and medications, which were presumably compounding everything. I mean, you described that very vividly in the book. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, that was part of the problem. So the thing to understand is both mentally and physically, when I hit this, it's nothing I'd ever seen before. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I thought my way through this, but I didn't know what was wrong with me. So, you know, you go see someone who's smarter than you, um, a psychiatrist or, you know, a hip surgeon or a physical therapist or whatever. And I had some general ideas. I had never been fond of medication. I avoided even pain medication, despite all the back problems and everything else I had. Um, but I was lost. Okay. And the guy said, you know, take you know, benzodiazepine. This is the best example. Um, the anxiety was really bad. And the psychiatrist, you know, prescribed to me um, clonazepam. Uh, I had my first attack of anxiety in 2005. Um, that was the first time I took clonazepam. And the thing about benzos is they work. <laughs> it's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. If you get this anxiety, you take this little pill and it's just gone and you feel like yourself again. And it's a wonderful thing. So it's not one of these gradual kind of uh, SSRIs or whatever. Yeah, the SSRIs just. It's a long road. Long road. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, that was terrible. I mean, there was nothing good about my SSRI experience. Right. Um, you know, it was, yeah, it was yeah. horrific, but the benzos first time really cool mm. and they work for a little while, but you a build up tolerance, B there are side effects and C all the benzo is doing is burying the problem further. And that problem will come out again. It cannot be buried. All right. I had buried it subconsciously for a long time. And now the drug's trying to bury it. And then once you get on one of these drugs, it is a bugger to get off of it. Mm -hmm. All right. Because as you 
titrate down or if you come down too quickly, blah, your body's reacting to the absence of the benzo in addition to the anxiety that you felt in the first place. I went on and off those things probably five or six times as I was struggling through this. And then I tried the SSRI, which didn't work hardly at all. Um, and meanwhile, also I took tramadol and I took oxycodone to try to help with the pain. And that's fairly well documented in terms of the problems and challenges there. Um, you know, and it wasn't until I saw the psychologist who explained to me my basic self-worth, I saw the muscle activation therapist, and then I got off the drugs. But it took me a long time. I was about April 5th, 2019 is when I took the last little cut up piece of clonazepam. And that's the last time I've taken any medication. And it, it has really helped. So there was a physical and a mental solution to these problems. What what else did you do? Did, were you, did you feel at any point that you were addicted to, to some of these drugs? I don't think so. I mean, and that's a hard thing to measure. Um, and I think, you know, people who are vastly smarter than I am know that different brains are wired differently. A lot people have more cravings. They're, they are more prone to addiction based on their brain makeup, supposedly. I mean, I don't know that I was prone towards addiction. I can tell you that I absolutely craved both the pain meds and uh, the benzos. I mean, those times when I would go off of it, you know, and then I'd just be so anxious. And and I always kept a supply, yeah. you know, I wasn't willing to fully cut the cord here. It's like, well, if I really need it, there it is. Yeah. Um, so I had those cravings. I don't, I don't know that I ever got to the point of being addicted because obviously I was able to, to beat it without a particularly extensive detox program. But yeah, I craved those pills. There's no two ways about that. Um, and it took some effort to get off of them. And the therapy or the psychiatry or whatever mixture of that, I, I'm not, not quite sure which it, which it was that, that helped most, but that the sort of talking around it, yeah. Was that was that the crucial factor? That and of course the muscle activation to relieve the pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, get get the the pain. Getting rid of the pain was enormously important because the pain, aside from being painful, was worried the hell out of me. It's like, am I ever going to get better? Is this it? So yeah. getting a path to deal with the pain. And then what I did is I did three and a half years of psychotherapy and the psychotherapy was really helpful. Because mm. what psychotherapy gets at is it helps develop in you that inherent sense of self-worth and it helps you open up and deal with issues that you've buried. And then the third piece is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I have a very negative attitude towards cognitive behavioral therapy, which, which is improved, but I'll explain why I have the negative attitude because in our area here in the state of Washington, cognitive behavioral therapy is the big thing. It's where the psychologists start. And that's certainly what happened with me with four or five different therapists. Cognitive behavioral therapy is teaching you how to better process what's going on in your life. You know, it's this, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how anxious, well, let's start with this. So you're anxious. What are you anxious about? Let's mm -hmm. talk through it. Okay, let's figure it out. And then once you've identified what you're anxious about, let's say on a scale of one to 10, how anxious does that make you? Okay, now what are some strategies that we could do to reduce your anxiety about that thing? Okay, you're anxious about a test coming up. Well, if you found a study partner who you trusted or, you know, and then, okay, does that bring your anxiety down? And all of that is helpful. All right. 
But if you haven't dealt with your basic self-worth, and if you haven't dealt with issues that you're burying, it's not helpful at all. It just pisses you off, okay? The analogy I've come up with, it's like, if you break your leg, you're going to need physical therapy at some point. But if you go to the physical therapy before you set the leg, that's really not going to help you, all right? <laughs> and that's the way I look at psychotherapy. Set the thing first, and then you can start talking through how, how to better manage it. Because I didn't know what I was anxious about. That's the point. I mean, I had some things I was worried about, but it was nothing new, okay? It just all of a sudden was this existential, I can't get to sleep, I can't eat, my stomach's in knots, my heart's going a million miles an hour. I don't know why, all right? Um, so that's the order for me. Get that sense of self-worth, figure out what issues you might be burying, and then deal with the cognitive behavior. I, I totally agree. I've always felt the same way about it because when I found myself in that sort of very anxious state of mind, I'm really at a loss. Almost the worst thing to be offered is some sort of practical solution <laughs> because <laughs> it it kind of annoys you. It makes you feeling uh, un- un- incompetent and sometimes almost like, and, and I'm it, oh, it's never the intention of the person offering it, of course. Yeah. So I'm not judging them, but it can make you feel stupid because it's sort yeah, of like, oh. Oh, you're worried about money. Have you thought of being more careful with your spending? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I have every day. But (laughs) listen, this is not, I don't need this. This suggests that the reason I'm feeling the way I'm feeling is that I've just sort of like been incompetent in my life, which is probably half the insecurity I have inside me buried deep anyway, that I might feel that way. You know, it's where the lack of self-worth comes from. So I I 100% agree with that order that you are suggesting um i was going to ask you as well in in your work which is obviously highly stressful famously cutthroat and very much in the public eye too did you feel that as if you needed to hide these issues that you were having that i mean the anxiety and 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 what was it like having to hide that every day yeah I, i absolutely felt that way um you know I had to like, just, you know, go through it. And frankly, I mean, every day it was very stressful. The hardest part about it was figuring out what can I do? Because my life is very planned in the sense that every day I got, okay, 10 requests for meetings. All right. Can you do this? Can you go to this? Can you travel? Can you, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, you know, and if I didn't know how I was going to be feeling and I have to, you know, plan the stuff a week, two weeks out, you know? So I'm like, can I, do, I don't know if I can do that. And, I, and I'd be like, okay, then I commit to it. And then we get closer to that day. And I'm like, okay, how am I feeling? How am I going to do this? That was incredibly stressful. The one thing that I did eventually, you know, take, I don't know, pride is the right word. I'd have all this stuff going on. It's like, okay, I got to sit down in a meeting and talk about, you know, public transportation for 45 minutes while I'm utterly freaked out. Um, I sort of took it as a challenge past a certain point. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I can do this. And I walk out and go, hey, and I'm like, yeah. Um, it was hard, but I, I sort of built it into part of how I was going to survive and get through this and, and keep doing my job. And also I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, I just had a ton of support. Um, and my, my staff, my family, people who helped me along the way. I mean, to have that support structure there, 
was something that I was truly blessed with. And I understand a lot of people who are dealing with these challenges don't necessarily have that around them. Uh, and that that makes it much, much more difficult. Now, this is a, um, a, a British podcast, although we do have a large American audience as well. And I am interested um, in the the problems in your healthcare system that I think your story has highlighted. Just just read a great book that highlights a lot of the, the problem with the opioid crisis called um, Demon Copperhead. I don't know if you've read that, but... It's a fascinating uh, novel that kind of focuses on that. And so it's something that I'm very interested in. And also, of course, from a British point of view, we continually are fretful here that our healthcare system is slipping towards an American model and then the NHS is constantly, you know, in peril. So tell us about the issues that you feel were highlighted by your case in, in the US healthcare system. Yeah, I, I dedicate a chapter in my book on this. The biggest problem with the American healthcare system is the the lack of access and also um, the inconsistency of the access. You know, you can have a job that has great health insurance and covers everything, and then you lose you lose that job, move to another, then all of a sudden you don't have access anymore. Or what happens a lot of times as well, even if you keep the same job, keep the same insurance, the insurance company and a particular set of healthcare providers get into a conflict and they're not covered anymore. All of a sudden, the doctor you'd been seeing for 10 years is out of network um, and, and not covered. It is a patchwork quilt. Even in my own case, as a member of Congress with federal government health care, um, members of Congress don't actually have any better health care than your average federal employee, but federal employees have you know decent health care. Um, there were a lot of providers who didn't take insurance or weren't covered by my insurance. So I, someone would say, hey, you got to see this person. I'd go, well, they're not covered. I can't afford 200 bucks a day um, to go see this person. So it is that inconsistency in the system in terms of what's covered and what's not covered. Now, I do point out in the book, um, even in a system like the British system or any single payer or universal access system, you don't get everything you want. And the biggest problem we have with healthcare is figuring out how to rationally ration it. All right. Nobody gets all the health care that they want unless they've got an endless supply of money and they can just pay whoever they want to pay. We have to make choices about what we're going to cover and what we're not going to cover. And in the U.S., we actually spend more money on health care in this country than any other country in the world. It's not even close on a per capita basis. Um, but what are we spending on? I mean, just one issue that we don't really deal with is end of life care. Um, if we brought our spending on end-of-life care down to what Great Britain spends on it, um, we wouldn't have a health care problem, okay? Um, or we certainly wouldn't have a Medicare problem. Um, but there are tough decisions involved in that, even deciding, you know, who gets covered. And I know in, in Great Britain and a lot of single-payer systems, you can't just say, okay, I need hip replacement, um, give it to me. Well, we'll see about that. I mean, there's always going to be decisions about what you pay for and don't pay for. And that's not anybody's fault. That's because of how complicated this all is. Um, and then it's a matter of how do you put together as rational a system as you can um, in light of those difficulties? I want to end on um, a beautiful uh, quote um, or idea 
from one of my favourite films, The Princess Bride. That is the, I think, title of your final chapter or penultimate chapter. And, you know, it's a it's a great thought that you map out that I think is helpful to all of us. And it's what are my liabilities, what are my assets? Yep. Um, talk us through that idea. Yeah, long before I dealt with this, that's, that's what I always, you know, I always sum things up that way. In any given situation in life, I would say you've got three things going for you and three things going against you. Your job is to maximize the former and minimize the latter. Um, there's rarely going to be a situation when everything's just laid out in front of you. And that's one of the, the at the end of the Princess Bride, I actually started the Princess Bride with the uh, the analogy in my book with he's not dead. He's mostly dead. Um, <laughs> that's the way I came to think about myself in 2016. Yeah. Like there's a path back here. Just believe that. But I love the, you know, at the end of the movie, when I'm trying to figure out how to storm the castle, you know, and it's like, it looks bleak, you know, because he's, he's, you know, he hasn't recovered yet from being mostly dead. Um, and they're a little bit outnumbered. But then he says, you know, what are my assets? And I think that's a great way to look at any problem you face. You can spend a lot of time going, oh, my gosh, I don't have this. I don't have that. I got that problem. But just spend a minute going, OK, what am I trying to accomplish? And what do I have on my side that could potentially help me accomplish it? At the end of the day, that's just, you know, you got to be optimistic in life. You got to look for those solutions. And that's the big message I try to deliver in this book. I want people to know help exists. There is a path. It's not necessarily easy, but the human mind, the human body have an unbelievable capacity to heal. All right. Um, believe that, uh, seek out those solutions and, and you can get better. Probably not perfect, but you can get better. Don't, don't ever stop believing that. It's a really beautiful message and your book is full of beautiful messages. And I'm, you know, grateful to you for writing it. Um, Lost and Broken, my journey back from chronic pain and crippling anxiety. There's so much wisdom in there and, um, and you've shared so much of it here today with us. So Congressman Adams from thank you ever so much. Well, thank you. It was, it was a great honor. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That was Congressman Adam Smith. What an enjoyable conversation. You can buy his book, Lost and Broken, on Amazon, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, as always. If you don't already, please consider supporting The Reset by upgrading to a paid subscription at samdelaney.substack.com. For a fiver a month, you get early access to this weekly pod, access to the full archive of over 100 episodes, regular bonus podcasts and exclusive newsletters from me too. Anyway, that's it for this week. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.